welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this weekend, we're currently enduring a bomb cyclone. I think that's what it's called, a bomb cyclone of snow. It's uh, what we call in New England, a winter wonderland out there. <laughs> and so we're going to talk about extreme weather in games. Rob, how, how's, how are things in the uh, further northeast even than I? What, 200... 50-ish miles north of me. How, how are things going over yeah, there? Yeah, so on the day we're recording, uh, there's a pretty heavy snowstorm uh, <laughs> all along the East Coast. But in Boston, it is ridiculous. Um, yeah, sure. I could not see across my street. Uh, oh. Like, certainly couldn't see down the street. But, like, even the houses across the street were um, were vanishing. Because in addition to the snowfall, we had a really strong wind that was kicking up uh, the snow that had already fallen. So it just became, like, complete whiteout. Um oh. And then the other thing that apparently is happening is we had an unusually high tide that the winds again sort of whipped up and flooded uh, sort of the coastal part of the city. And so like a lot of people are struggling to get around the city and get home. But it is effectively uh, shut this town down. And that always puts me in mind of um, some of my like favorite games and like I'm get, I'm thinking explicitly of uh, the first Max Payne, but like I love those games that use improbably exaggerated strong weather events to like <laughs> set and sustain a certain tone. It's like because like okay, so there can be a movie like Key Largo, and it's like a hurricane blows in, and that makes sense, right? Like yeah, that's how hurricanes work. That's how it goes. Games tend to be longer, yeah, and. <laughs> They tend to so like when when they're employing like weather as a, as a significant plot point, you tend to get these ridiculously strong like even Stephen King might might be like yeah this might be this might be stretching plausibility uh, meteorologically speaking, but in games I just I just adore that shit. Yeah, I I like it a lot more in games than in life. I I'll be honest, at least with with regard to really cold weather for sure i actually yeah. am weirdly drawn to uh games that take place in the cold even though i have like a very strong uh hatred of winter i have declared a war on winter this year that's a thing i've done uh you know basically to help with my own uh my own sanity more than anything uh since you know we've had since i moved back from california we've had a couple of mild winters and then this year has happened uh and it really pisses me off uh but here we are and uh, and I weirdly very much enjoy movies and games set in like snowy hellscapes. Mm -hmm. uh, I've I've had fun with The Long Dark. Yeah. I've had fun with uh, what is the game that was like the French Canadian weird? Oh, Kona. Yes, I love God. That thing Kona. Is weird. I really loved Kona. Now I haven't finished it, so you know I I I don't know what happens at the end, but I sure love the idea of being in a frozen ass seventies wasteland with like. Weird, you know, just like Cajun music playing on, on every radio in in like a abandoned gas station. And you can tell it's like negative 20 degrees and you have to solve a mystery. There's something really appealing about that. I guess it's it's just the bleakness of of the weather that sort of like brings out the bleakness of the human spirit and, and the sort of grittiness and, and desire to survive that you need to have. But I I love it. I love the thing. I love the gray. I love all sorts of movies that that have uh, you know two syllables, the one syllable thing. Yeah, it's it's just a very appealing thing, and I think it's because it's so 
stark. It is such a, yeah, you're gonna die. If you don't do something about this, you're dead. You are just dead. The cold will suck the life out of you. So you need to, you know, you need to break some glass. You need to put some tape on your hands and you need to kill the wolf because you need to survive. Damn, sounds like I really need to see the gray. It's so good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like I enjoy these things that sort of make the weather a character, a meaningful uh, antagonist. And I think that's partly because like, uh, you know, it's it, it it so clearly exaggerates the man versus nature themes, uh, you know, really makes it feel like the world itself can be a hostile place. Uh, and that's like what a game like, uh, you know, The Long Dark certainly is doing. Um, I think I also like, and I like this in real life too, um, the way extreme weather can cause typically heavily inhabited uh, busy places to feel utterly deserted, right? Like there's something really compelling about those sort of apocalyptic stories where in most cases people are going through the, you know, the ruins of, you know, the world after it's been abandoned. Right. So it's like, um, the day after tomorrow, uh, not the day after tomorrow, um, 28 days later, yeah, uh, yes. for instance, stuff like that. Uh, but there's also something interesting in the, in those ideas that like, the weather is like the environment is so strong. Nature is reasserting itself with so much authority that like all the stuff that we've put in place to allow us to function within it has been sort of wiped out for the day. Right. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Uh, and I think that lends itself to uh, the needs of video games particularly well, because uh, with the exception, like unless you're an, an, an Ubisoft or something that can <laughs> make these like huge, densely populated worlds that all feel lifelike, uh, you actually kind of want some sort of justification for your world to be slightly depopulated, right? And this was certainly truer 20 years ago or so when yeah. you literally couldn't put that many characters on a screen at once, uh, or if you did, they couldn't they couldn't look remotely lifelike. Um, and so, like, I've always enjoyed how uh, in Max Payne, they wanted to have a gritty New York, like, potboiler slash John Woo movie. And it needed to, like, look and feel like it's it's taking place in the sort of cinematic ideal we have for, for New York. Uh, but the problem is you're a video game and you just can't do that. Uh, you, you know, it, it, you can only create levels full of a handful of enemies, uh, and that's how it's got to be. And so their solution was to create this apocalyptic snowstorm uh, that in the game is, is really effective, and it does sort of feel right, this idea that, like, with the exception of a few emergency vehicles sort of, you know, running through the streets, um, everything is shut down. Uh, the world has been sort of divided into these little islands of... Uh, you know, inhabited spaces and warmth that you that you come in and you tend to shoot everybody. Uh, and then all the spaces in between are just uninhabitable. And this is why no civilians uh, are out are out in that storm. Uh, and I just I, I just kind of love the way that feels that like that that both that nature can like suspend the rules of normal life uh, to an extent. Yeah. But then also sort of clear the board of extraneous elements, right? Like, if people are out in this, it is because they have some serious motivations. <laughs> and I, I like that, too. Yeah. 
Yeah, that definitely speaks to that sort of like really gritty survival instinct uh, type of stuff that I enjoy. I mean, I enjoy this generally in the the Western genre mm-hmm. of any you know anything uh, movies or games or, or TV or anything. Um, and westerns that instead of kind of having a more desert looking feel have that sort of snowy prairie you know god this is miserable kind of feel to it the the scenes i like the most in true grit are sort of the snowy scenes uh where folks are just yeah just doing their best man they're just trying to survive they're just trying to make it out there they got true grit um i like that a lot it, it kind of does speak to me um especially as somebody who just hates the winter so much because it makes me feel like i have allies like it makes me feel like we're all in this together. Yeah, we're in the trenches in our giant coats and our boots and our stupid gloves, and nobody's happy. And we're all in this together. Like no one stands above this. This is weather is a great equalizer <laughs> in certain ways, right? We don't live in domed cities with the you know nice habitats and, and the way um, you know controlled weather like you know many sci-fi cities look like. We don't live in those worlds. No, we live in a world where nature can just kick our asses at any second. And uh, that that makes us all equal as humans in certain ways. Now, obviously, obviously, that's not actually true. We're not actually uh, treated equally as human beings. Of course, people with less means uh, have, you know, shittier heating situations. There was a giant fire in the Bronx uh, last week. Actually, while I was on duty, it happened uh, while I was on my ambulance and getting like reports about it. Because people will do things like turn on their stoves. They have old stoves and boof, there goes the building. Like really, really sad and shitty stuff. Uh, but the idea, like the the theme that it makes us equal in some ways is what's appealing about it, I think. Um, and you really should watch The Grey because that is that movie is 100% just surviving winter hellscape. That is the whole movie. That is the entire thing. It's Liam Neeson being at his Liam Neesonist, uh, <laughs> like... Um, he's like a hunter, not a hunter. He's everybody is an employee. It's a crashed airplane, right? Yes. It's a crashed airplane from folks who work on oil fields in like Northern Alaska. Uh, they get on a plane to kind of come home from camp, you know, where they've been for a long time and the plane crashes and the few survivors need to make it. And of course they've crashed in uh, wolf country. Uh, so it's, it's brutal. But these wolves are super hungry, Right, they're like, hungry and they're pissed off because these few people are in their territory and they they are like eating them for sport and not just for oh wow you know, okay because they're mad, um, which I don't know anything about wolves so I have no idea if that's pretty much not how bullshit. they roll. <laughs> I have no clue. <laughs> I have no clue. Uh, like no, like from what <laughs> I understand of uh, like uh, like North American gray wolves, um, like we're pretty much the last thing they want to eat. Mm. Uh, they're like, usually there's enough deer and elk, uh, for them to, to get by. Um, I don't know. I don't even know if they, they fuck with moose, uh, that much. Cause like, you know, moose is pretty serious. That's a, that's a tough thing to hunt. That is a commitment. Um, to bring one of those, it, those things are like two tons, aren't they? Like massive, giant. They're animals. real Maybe not big. Two tons. They're, but they're real big and giant. real dangerous. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. yeah, I don't. But yeah, no, the, no. The idea that like, um, <laughs> like humans are scared of wolves, and like if you like if wolves are super super hungry, uh, and like they're isolated humans in their hunting territory, then yeah, you know, uh, wolves are gonna hunt. Uh, but. Yeah, I, I no, definitely the Gray's conceit is that there are some <laughs> badass, like basically it's like the Warriors uh, version of wolves, I guess. Is the way to <laughs> kind put of, it. yeah. 
The Gray Warriors. Oh, God, that I love be, that shit. You know, that sounds great. The Warriors Gray. Uh, but I think there's yeah. I, I think there's something to that, though. That's a really good point that, like, uh, and you, you actually see this in, in, in Westerns, too, uh, at yeah. times. But the, this this idea that, like, a lot of our society preserves these rules of, like, class and wealth relations. Um, yeah. And you're allowed to buy your way. Like, some people are, are sort of thrown to a lot of different elements and a lot of certain vicissitudes of fortune. Yes. Uh, and then certain other people can feel like that they're immune to that. Uh, that the, that their wealth allows them to sort of sidestep that, and it is sort of a cool theme in a lot of these stories. That like, okay, but now the chips are down, and we are all in this together. Yeah, and you know the things that you know the the things you 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 may feel that you've always been secure from, the people you've felt like you didn't have to rely on or didn't need uh, suddenly. You know, each other is all you have. And that's uh, can be a hopeful theme as well as a menacing one. Yes. Uh, uh, I te- increasingly, I do tend toward the uh, stagecoach vision of, um, of the role of the uber, uber wealthy uh, in, in certain survival crises. <laughs> Eat the rich a little bit, you know? Pretty I mean, much. Uh, I mean that, guy, that guy in stagecoach fucking sucks. He's a like, jerk. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. no, I uh, the yeah the, these stories are kind of fun for for the way they 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 sort of uh, you know can compress a lot of they they can sort of br- like act as a catalyst to bring a lot of situations and characters to a head. Yes, it's also like a. Uh, I mean, there's also a lot going on in terms of of winter just sort of generally as well like it's it's an actual legit survival threat in our everyday lives right and it's not that okay obviously anybody who has an illness has survival threats in their everyday lives but for healthy people who are not um you know who are who are i guess doing okay in this world i don't know how else to put this but you know if you if your normal uh things that you're worried about every day are you know generally you know having your job paying the bills things like that when you're suddenly faced with keep warm, you might lose power. It, something like a hurricane or a blizzard very much is like a oh, I could die. I could actually die today. You know, it's it's one of it's one of those that actually is is a little bit um, it's humbling in certain ways and terrifying in other ways, but maybe a positive in other ways. Uh, a positive in terms of like it's it's actually reminding you that you're a being a physical being that lives in a world yeah. uh, where there are threats and, and here you are and you're alive and you're going to have to do things to stay alive. And there's something about that, that I don't want to say is a positive, I, that's really the wrong term to use. Uh, but I occasionally like being reminded that I am alive, <laughs> that I am a being in this world, that I am not an entity on the internet. Um, I guess not occasionally. I guess I like having that a lot. I guess I am the kind of person who appreciates that sort of feeling and, uh, appreciating that feeling if that makes any sense at all in the universe i mean i like i'm i'm going on my ambulance tonight i'm i'm gonna be out in this storm hopefully being helpful to people i'm actually really looking forward to it Uh, i'm not looking forward to the mile walk to my base in this at all uh that's gonna yeah that's gonna be bad (laughs) i'm worried about that i'm gonna be wearing several layers but i'm actually excited to go out and do it i'm actually excited to be like you know what winter 
kiss my ass. I'm out here. <laughs> and maybe that's a weird thing, but I, I guess uh, we all have our ways of coping with <laughs> with the weather, right? Well, you know, so there was this um, thread before the holidays uh, that a certain well-known game developer uh, put out there about, like, you know, how easy we have it today uh, and how hard <laughs> it used to be just to, like, sustain uh, yourself as a living organism. Uh, and, uh, the dude got roasted pretty bad. Uh, and we all got to enjoy witnessing that. <laughs> um, but one of the threads that one of the, the replies to that, uh, one of the lines of reply was that this idea that actually, um, you know, once upon a time, like, Yes, in some ways survival was harder, but it was also you also had more forced downtime, right? Yeah. The, this idea that like you actually had to sort of respond to the rhythms of the world, right? Like, you know, there's seasons where you know, nothing's going to grow. Like you can't, you know, you're not you can't you can't farm in the winter. Like literally there's there's only so much you can do. Uh, during that time of year, you know, if you, if you, if you go to the hunter, the hunter gatherer model, uh, yeah. the, again, you still run into points where like food is going to be scarce or a lot of what is required to survive is actually just having patience, just being aware and watchful and out in the world. And I think games that sort of are, are built around this theme or stories around the, this theme, we don't have that very much in our current world anymore. Uh, because yeah. again, like civilization, we, 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 you're talking about Danielle, like that reminder that you are, you are an organism, you know, in this, in this natural world. Uh, a lot of civilization is about actually keeping that feeling at bay, right? Yeah. You're, uh, no, you're, you're a rational, like you're, you're an intellect, uh, that sort of floats between, uh, you know, these islands of productivity and economic activity. Uh, but in terms of like the natural world, uh, you know, it, our civilization strives to make that as, uh, extraneous to you as possible, right? The, 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 the buses are going to run, the trains are going to run, the office is still going to be open. And even if it's not, uh, increasingly you can do it on the internet. Right. Uh, there is no need to respond to any of this. And I like, I think one of the great things both about, you know, why it's a, why it's a compelling theme in fiction, uh, but also it's kind of compelling when it happens in real life is it serves as this reminder uh, that there's a point where that does break down. You know, there, yeah. there's a point where the insulation is stripped away and the natural world is going to remind you that no, 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 um, it is actually all interconnected. You know, weather is not just a thing that passively changes the conditions of your day, whether you're hot or cold. Uh, it is, you know, evidence of climatic processes yes. uh, that are going to sort of, you know, increasingly, increasingly affect your reality. Um, and I think that is a cool thing to be reminded of. Uh, and it is particularly fun in fiction to sort of play around with the extreme uh, versions of it. Right, like um, all day today, I've been fighting with the desire to reinstall the division. Uh, because, <laughs> yeah, like, yes. <laughs> and even setting aside the 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 toxic uh, garbage politics of of the division, um, I think you know what was the core fantasy there? Well, parts of it were: <laughs> wouldn't it be cool to be a survivalist who's heavily armed and blinged out? 
um, in outerwear, uh, just gunning people down on the streets of New York. Yeah, that's part of the fantasy. But I think the other part of it is like, what if, you know, what if humanity basically like lost control of its urban spaces and like nature reclaimed them and you suddenly it's a wilderness again that you have to navigate. Um, I just, I find that, you know, that is catnip to me. I'm, I'm just like, yeah, show me, show me this lovingly recreated version of New York that's like been completely denuded of people. Uh, and then like, yeah, give me a gun and I'll go play in it. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, there's a, oh God, there's a very weird and very um, individualistic appeal to all of this, right? It's, you don't have to be a drone in society anymore. You could be a badass. Because you're yeah. one person who's a badass. And that's like a very, you know, I mean, that's a pervasive fantasy. I think a lot of the apocalyptic fiction that we have now, and, and not just now, obviously, like more like the last 20 years or so, of like apocalyptic doom fiction um, kind of trades in that. But, you know, the Western was always playing with that. Yeah. The entire genre was always playing with that. The individual versus, you know, well, at least John Wayne's vision uh, yeah, sort of the of. Western was very much like that. But there is, uh, I can't deny that there's a part of myself that also like super enjoys some of this stuff. And uh, yeah, let's sometimes look. I worry about what that says about me. Well, no, but, <laughs> I, I, but I think let's, you know, if, if we, if we pick that apart a little bit and, and, and get into it, like, there are, I, I think there's the way we we remember a lot of John Wayne movies, which are, you know, one man standing against, uh, you know, you know the rugged individualist basically uh, yeah. doing the rugged individualist thing. Um, but actually, I think that's more the way John Wayne sort of created his own mystique around himself, and that was sure. largely bullshit. Yeah. Uh, but like, there's the John Wayne character, but then if you look at a lot of his films. Uh, they're about like communities, and I think maybe where they draw the line is <sighs> in westerns. You have this idea that community and interdependence is small; it's a micro scale thing, and you can see it again. The stagecoach model, right? You're all yeah. literally on this tiny little vessel going through. Uh, a hostile wilderness. Uh, now, again, backdropped in that in that movie is I think the biggest threat is a tribe of uh, you know restless Native Americans who oh, just want to okay. murder uh, white people. Um, which, to be fair, uh, probably had it coming uh, yep. <laughs> when you consider consider the context. But nevertheless, like yeah, the the film has uh, like gross settler politics behind it, but the vision it's it has is uh like very depression era in some ways right it's right. it's very like no like out here you know out here in the fields no <laughs> out here you know in in the wilderness yeah. um or on the edges of civilization suddenly we see how and why we matter to each other um and the allowances we have to make for each other and the ways we have to work together. Uh, this is even, I, I would even argue this is a theme in movies like, uh, you know, Rio Bravo, uh, sure. where, sure. you know, he's got to defend the town uh, to, to do his job, but it requires like leveraging, uh, you know, his allies within the town and, and, and working his relationships. But the other part of this 
you know, the, the so that's one version of survival fantasy, or the or at least in the like the fantasy of like living in those border spaces between like civilization and uh, some sort of like Hobbesian wilderness. But then there is that other fantasy, and they blur into each other, of like you're the hyper rugged, clever, uh, completely like solo actor yeah. uh, in the story. And with your own uh, wit and wisdom and the strength of your own two hands, uh, you can master the elements. And that fantasy does start to like that fantasy can lead to some like weird values. Yeah. Yes. Correct. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> Let's be fair, I, I have a lot of fantasies that teenage boys have, so I, I probably shouldn't uh, only <laughs> only be bad about this one. But no, I mean, seriously, I I enjoy fiction uh, where there's a rugged actor able to to be awesome. And of yeah. course, I, li- I like it when that rugged actor is awesome and also helps people and saves the town and protects people and does all those those cool things, too. Isn't just sort of gallivanting. But is showing, uh, you know, empathy and respect for other people, and and having those kind of, yeah, human life above above all, above whatever greed uh, values. Those are fun. Those are they're very broad strokes, of course. Yeah. Uh, but they're they're fun, and they they sort of add a little bit of weight to that survivalist fantasy as well. They add a little bit of oh, this isn't so bad. <laughs> Maybe this would be all right if if we all actually lived under something like this. Um, of course. I, I just think a lot of it also has to do with the fact that we're just really not good at uh, processing sort of the numbers of human beings that live on our planet. And uh, no, we suck at it. And uh, we're much better in small group environments because that's how our brains were evolved to to actually deal with things. Uh, so I think some of that is is a comfort as well. I think there's a comfort in in sort of having a vision of the world that has very few people in it. And maybe it's a hostile world, but those very few people are going to kind of have to get along in a lot of ways. Yeah. There's something warm about that. Yeah. And I think that's like what a lot of those Westerns would be returning to is this idea that like, yeah. wasn't it great back when civilization was something you could wrap your mind around? Yes. Um, and we have like, uh, you know, to a degree that's always been uh, an illusion, but I totally get what you mean. And it's why sometimes events like this are, uh, sort of fun to be a part of and, and, and sort of warming. Like I have a friend who lived in Florida for a number of years and, you know, he said that, you know, a, a, a small hurricane, a category one, uh, you know, for people who'd been, to, been through that a number of times uh, was, you know, kind of almost festive uh, for, for people <laughs> who'd, who'd been, who, who dealt with it a lot. Uh, and I think part of that is because um, it, it, you know, there, it, it, it puts you in those we're all in this together uh, type type moments and i think sort of a i think for sure it's a crisis of our politics right that like yes we i'm getting increasingly just pessimistic about people's ability to understand anything without firsthand experience yeah Um, and i include this you know i include myself in this like yeah i can pretty much like chart my growth as an individual and like the, you know, development of my politics such as they are based on like the degree to which I was encountering more people from different walks of life uh, than the people I grew up with. 
Um, and the weird thing is I still knew those experiences existed and those, those truths existed even when I was a kid, but for some reason until I interacted, you know, with people from those backgrounds before I interacted with, with those realities first or second hand, um, they didn't feel real as much to me anymore. And I, and I worry that like that is kind of the issue across the board. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how we get around that, but here's a massive weather event. So it sort of, <laughs> you know, it sort of put forces everybody, uh, you know, in, in, into the same boat, uh, even if it's just temporary, right. It, it sort of forces you into that. Well, I guess, you know, we're all sharing this reality and we're all sharing a struggle. Uh, and the truth is we're doing, we're doing that all the time anyway. Uh, but we're just not forced to realize it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird. What reminds us we're human sometimes, of course. <laughs> it's, it's very weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think, what do you think separates like, a good survival fantasy from a bad one. I mean, for me, the thing that will turn me off the quickest is shit ass politics. Like, yeah. uh, something that really does kind of think like, Oh, you know, the strong will survive and the weak will perish. And that's yeah. the way it should be. Something that's like that, something that takes that tone, uh, immediately I'm ready to flush it down the fucking garbage. Um, because in, in, in real life and even in, even in terms of, like really, really brutal, honest, get down to it. Uh, things like f in fights, even or in really, really extreme survival situations, the strongest, the biggest, bulkiest dude who's in the best shape could, could still get killed in a, in a you know a nanosecond. Like it, that reality is, no matter how strong you are, no matter how fast you are, no matter how smart you are, you're a frail being. Uh, it doesn't matter what happens. You're, you're still a frail being. Uh, so something that, that <clears throat> actually shows, shows a little bit of that and shows a little bit of a lot of this is down to luck. A lot of it is down to things like planning and sharing and, and being a good, you know, little citizen in your little group and doing the things that are smart to do. But a lot of it is luck because this is, you know, humans versus nature. It's, it's not, <laughs> it's never going to be something you can calculate. It's never going to be something you can kind of get the numbers on your side for. Um, that, and, and I also, I appreciate uh, when things do show a person who is maybe smaller or, you know, less, uh, know, let's just say it, less of a cowboy or, or something, yeah. less of the absolute, you know, the John Wayne picture, if they make it out, if they survive, that kind of makes me happy because it's sort of showing like yeah you know what uh some of that shit is absolute bullshit some of what we think of as being very natural order stuff is, isn't natural at all it's just a very sort of bullshit human tendency and uh here we are the reality is you were born naked you're gonna die naked and uh here it is <laughs> here we all are <laughs> yeah i think it's um For me, I think it's not a coincidence that a lot of times where um, these fantasies start to lose me is when they start weaving in a lot of themes of acquisition and yeah. uh, securing oneself. Uh, because there's a point where that starts to become laughable in context. Yeah. Uh, so, like, 
Okay, like, the way games express this a lot of times, uh, and The Long Dark is maybe a bit of an exception, uh, only because, like, it is so brutal, like, it's such a brutal struggle to survive uh, in that game that you're not actually allowed to build up, like, a large resource stockpile for the most part. Uh, But a lot of these games, uh, The Division being one of the purest uh, expressions of this, but, you know, (laughs) even a game like Rust... um, they also start to embrace this idea that yes, once you've like once you've improved your own survival skills enough, uh, then you can start creating whatever passes for wealth and security in those contexts. Um, and that's where these things start to lose me a bit because it starts like creating this fantasy that like if you're just yeah if you're just smart enough, quit enough, uh, quick enough, um, you know experienced and trained enough that you can out of the midst of you know a deadly blizzard in a wilderness uh somehow like carve out uh you know a rather comfortable shelter and uh you know uh you know tools for production of further wealth um and i think it's interesting to me how like how the survival fantasy has gotten really tangled up, uh, particularly in games with consumerist fantasy. Yeah. I agree. I totally agree. Did you hear the story? This is somewhat related uh, about the, this is maybe four years ago. There was a guy in Maine who actually built a weird shelter and he survived for 20 years or something in Maine winters by like actually raiding cabins, like summer cabins, and eating a lot of yes, candy yes, and fattening totally up in the fall. Him. Okay, yeah. This story that uh, became like you know there there were a whole there was a whole bunch of like bro rhetoric that was like celebrating this guy who was like yeah he he was like screw you life and then I mean the guy was clearly like first of all just such a friggin' coward. He was stealing children's Halloween candy, was what he was doing, and stealing, like, Pokemon from children, um, and being a weird creep who who just, like, went into other people's cabins and stole things. Like, oh yeah, what a great survivalist. He's, you know, existing in a Ferrero Rocher candy and, like, stealing Pikachu from children. Like, it was just this insane story that I always think of when I think of the, like, Oh, the survivalist fantasy. I'm like, it's that guy. It's this yeah. example of humanity who's listening to. Sorry, but this is actually a true fact of it. Listening to like conservative talk radio and like eating stolen children's Halloween candy. Like, that's what it is. It's not some rugged cowboy-looking man who has made it work in the wilderness. It's it's this fucking guy. Like, that's that's your fantasy. Good for you. You know. I'll, I'll never not think of that. Di- I, I don't know his name. I just remember this story. I can actually like find a link or something, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and like, the, yeah, exactly. Like, um, there's a reason humans like human culture grew up around like, uh, societies, right? Like, I mean, like at no point were like significant, like human populations living completely atomized uh, apart from, apart from one another. Um, 
but yeah, it's it, th- this idea that no, the the the, the real human experience uh, in some sort of long forgotten primordial past uh, is that yeah, it's 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 one it's it's one dude uh, who it, you know it's, yeah, it's it's one dude who who could totally have carved out all the comforts and security of modern civilization by himself uh, <laughs> from the wilderness. God, what is um shit? There's a uh, the guy's name is Christopher Knight. Not to throw your your train off the track there. Just throw yeah. that out there in case people are curious to Google it. No, but I'm racking my brain yeah. for the the humor version of this is in um uh Ash versus the uh what oh. is the second movie where he yeah, goes back yeah, in time yeah. he's got his fucking chemistry textbook. Yeah. Uh, and he basically like creates uh like modern civilization and and, and firearms <laughs> for this pe- for the for these people. Uh, because he's got a chemistry textbook. That's the funny version of it. Uh, but I feel like the... Uh, well, I mean, shit. Like, I, I suppose, uh, you know, The Martian is even an example of this. A, a cute and charming one, but, like, this yeah. idea that, like, yeah, with just the right skills, uh, you know, you could... You know, you could colonize any space uh, you like. Yeah. But, yeah. Yes, it's. I think it's worth making fun of that fantasy in, in a lot of ways, even even if I completely admit to ha- having parts of it, or at least the parts that I find tasteful, I guess. Um, in so much as uh, that, there's something there's something nice about being reminded that you're human and and uh, to actually participate in your little corner of civilization and and being very much reminded you have to do that or you're you're ditto, you know. Um, <laughs> But I will also admit to, uh, and this is completely, uh, this is on topic, but it's it's on a completely different tact. I really like ice and snow levels in games. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a weird, it's a weird thing because I hate ice and snow so much. I hate it with all my heart. I mean, I hate the Mario Kart ice levels, so. Oh, really? I like them a lot. I oh. like the ice. It's so stupid, but do I Do you like, like the it. slippy and slidey mechanics? I do. I really do. Really? It's so goofy. I, I think it's like the only happy memory I have about snow is like playing out in the snow. As a wow, kid. that is and dire. I know. Okay. Well, I mean. I, uh, no, I'm sorry. I, I didn't think that was the rest of your sentence. I thought like the only happy memory of, of snow that you had was Mario Kart. Oh, no, And I no, was no. like, damn, you're from New England. That's that's harsh. Right. No, no, no. I mean, um, I hate snow a lot, but I do have those happy, you know, I had a sled, you know, as a kid and enjoyed playing out in the snow as a young child until I grew up and realized snow is horrible and only gets in the way of things and kills people. Um, But, you know, I have those happy memories of of playing out in the snow. So like Mario snow levels, I always enjoyed. I like the weird slippy mechanics. I I like how goofy it is and playful it is and how it kind of puts a little weird twist on the physics every time. I've always enjoyed that, even though uh, I completely understand if people find it very annoying, because, you know, it kind of is. But man, give me some, uh, what is it, Sherbert Land in Mario Kart 64, I believe, is the track that is probably my favorite track in that entire game, and it is all on the ice, and it is just a disaster, and it's hilarious. I just, I enjoy it. I guess that's Mario Kart to me, though, is just a hilarious disaster happening. It's, It's half of the fun for me. Yeah, I uh I mean I enjoy difficult driving conditions in racing games uh yeah. for sure like mastering that stuff is is a lot of fun. We both talked about like how 
a really good racing game. You can sort of recreate white knuckle driving, uh, yes. but in a fun, uh, like uh, stakes free uh, zone where you can enjoy like the good parts of that pressure and concentration without the uh, without the fear of imminent death. Yeah, um, which I've definitely courted a few times in in bad weather. It's always it's yeah. always really shitty to be on the road and feel that moment where you realize like, yep, my tires can no longer cope, and I am just sort of aiming this car down the road and hoping nobody comes up behind me very fast. God, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, even in platformers, so many nightmares. What's up, sorry? Even in platformers? I do. Like when your shitty little dude just like sticks the landing, but then he doesn't stick and just like goes dead. Yes. You like that. I kind of do. I mean, okay. To be fair, I also just generally like, uh, you know, platformers. And I generally like good platformers. And and I'm I'm speaking right now specifically about like the Mario, you know, Mario 64 and, and Mario, well, not Mario Sunshine. There wasn't much ice in that game, but... Uh, you know, like the later Mario Galaxies and then even um, sort of uh, Mario 3D Land had some really fun sort of snow and ice levels as well. 3D World and 3D Land, actually. But I guess I'm talking more about 3D World, which is the uh, the Wii U game uh, that I played through like four times with various people. Really, really, really fun. And, and you got to be Kuroboo's ice skate instead of just Kuroboo's shoe. And it was, oh man, it was really cute. Those are all Do- words that mean something to me. I, I sorry, I realized halfway through. Uh Okay, you know in Super Mario 3, yeah. the NES game, you got to, in one level, you got to be in the boot, the little shoe. Oh, shit, yes. I do remember that. I probably pronounced it wrong. I, no, I, I just, I had forgotten that entire thing existed. <laughs> Karibu. I don't fucking know. But, I probably pronounced it wrong, but whatever. Uh, and in Mario 3D World, which is uh, the game from like five years ago almost now, actually, the Wii U uh, 3D platformer that you could play with four people. Uh, which is a wonderful game, very underrated. Uh, there was an ice and snow level where you could you could be in Karibu's ice skate, and it was really cute. These are, these are the things I remember. You know, these these are the things that make ice and snow levels fun, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, I enjoy oh, that kind shit. of goofy stuff. Okay, actually, that just put me in mind though. Like, I think this helps me understand also why where the consumerist fantasy often ties into uh, the survival fantasy. Oh, and what is that? There is also a great deal of pleasure to be had from when you have the perfect kit and gear to deal with, like, extreme conditions. Ah. Like, and, like, I mean, The Division is certainly 100% about this. Uh, but even, like, The Long Dark, you know, you find good clothing, good warm shit to to help you through, and it's, like, an immediate upgrade. To me, it's, um, I came into this winter with uh, brand new, uh, very good hiking boots. Mm, that helps and yeah and like i've just been enjoying the weather uh and and also i I have a really heavy um winter coat with like a reflective liner uh so like no matter how cold it is like i put that thing on i will be sweating uh inside it (laughs) it does not like you know i was in saint paul last year and like cracking it open at night just to uh just because it was too intense in there uh but anyway But I think that's that, that's a part of it is this idea that um, games love to give you stuff, you know? Yes, true. And a lot of times that stuff is just cosmetic or doesn't seem like it matters. Uh, but the survival fantasy can sort of give you this, like, sudden relevance, right? Where, like, oh, but now 
now with this piece of gear, uh, you are able to handle these conditions. Um, and as long as there, you, you sort of like cherish that fantasy of like, ah, oh, but the, then there's always that piece of gear that will make me the master of this environment. Ah, uh, true. That is actually a huge part of the appeal of Breath of the Wild, believe it or not, too, is, is having the, so right, I've started gear playing the right environments. And yeah, yes. Um, I have not had weather in it yet. Uh, it's oh, just okay. another beautiful Hyrulean day after another. Um, <laughs> well, except for the Blood Moon. Uh, which is sure. pretty cool looking. Um, although it's not as dramatic as I think it's supposed to be because I have trouble killing the goblins. Oh, no. Um, That's right. You think they're cute or something. Or you think they're like kind of I think they're harmless. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And I think there's a concerning... They just hang out. True. And... They, like, dance and party together and occasionally, like, have some tasty food roasting over a fire. Like, I am, I'm like here for asshole. all of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, like, right, but exactly. But that's the thing is, like, no, I think that's that's my family. Like, my, like you know what I mean? It's kind of like, oh, they're just, they're just grilling out. Like, I don't know what the what the problem is. Yeah. Um, and, like, they're not even that aggressive. Like, they're they're... Agro radius is pretty wide. Um, sorry, they're like. It's, yeah, they, it's not huge. Yeah, you can run away. Yeah, like you've got a lot of room to sort of get in their space where they'll pay attention to you, but like they won't actually attack. You got to really like bait them to get them to attack. And so I'm just kind of at this point where I'm like, eh, what if I didn't fuck with these guys? <laughs> what if you just let them have their roast? Their roast fish. Enjoy yeah. it, buddy. You know, yeah. have fun. But then there's the, there. this other part of me that's like, yeah, but I've got a bomb that rolls down a hill, and there's oh. like five dudes down there within the radius of one bomb blast. If I if if I aim this right, true. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So I haven't done much with the, with the weather. Uh, but there was a big there was that big thread uh, the other week, right? About uh, I think it was Jeff yeah. Gersman talking about uh, how badly he wished there wasn't rain. In uh, in Breath of the Wild, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things. It it has annoyed me at times, certainly, because I had grand plans, and it just started raining, and I was like all the way up a giant cliff, and then it starts raining. That's annoying. That is a bit annoying. But I do. Does it generally... just like erode your grip and you fall? It does. Yeah, you always fall uh, in the rain, typically. Um, and I sort of, I played Breath of the Wild very much like a platformer. Like, I spec'd myself out to be, ex have all this damn stamina so I could run, I can climb, I can jump, I can hover everywhere. I never rode a horse. I rode one horse in my entire 250 hours with that game. Uh, and it was just the skeleton horse because it was cool. Sorry if I just spoiled the skeleton horse for you. There's a few. Um, anyway. Yeah, so so I, you know, I was all stamina all the time and, and using that to run around. And so, like, when I had to kind of deal with the rain, I'd be like, oh, God damn it. Uh, but I do like that it makes it feel... Austin has a, had a good point in, in a thread recently um, talking about this specifically, about liking that the world was a little bit hostile to you, that the world does not just exist for you to be there in it. It, it feels more like an organic place because there's things like rain and whatever, it's going to rain. You're just going to have to deal with it. That is cool. I, I think that is actually a very cool feature of the game. So, yeah, I yeah. kind of like the rain. Just sometimes it's annoying. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Weather. If we could afford licensed music, this is the part where we'd segue with uh, 
Uh, that garbage song. God, yes. I'm only happy when it rains. Yeah. How about you? <laughs> Same pretty much. I mean, it's why I like Boston. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> if you like gloom and rain, uh, boy, do I have the city for you. This, this, this is the place for you. Screw California. Well, I'm only happy when it rains, but there are actually, uh, there was no weekend correspondence uh, this this particular week, uh, which is totally okay. Uh, but of course, you could always uh, you always send us questions if you want to, questions at idleweekend.net, and we can have some, some good questions for next time. Uh, but for now, I think that means we should go right into our weekend projects. So Rob, is there something you're reading or watching or, or anything that you're enjoying, especially right now? Uh, boy, is there ever. Oh! Um, I am in the middle of a DC Comics uh, renaissance, oh. I suppose. Um, and what I'm into right now is uh, the new run of Nightwing under cool. Tim Seeley and uh, illustrated by uh, uh, Chris Sotomayor and Javier Fernandez. Nice. Uh, I think that's uh, how the credits break down on this. Uh, let me just double. Yeah, I didn't fuck that up. It's fine. Nice. That was correct. <laughs> That's the correct uh, crediting. Uh, but yeah, so Tim Seeley, I think we talked about the Grayson uh, series a bit last year, uh, which is uh, Dick Grayson, a.k.a. Robin, a.k.a. Nightwing, yes. uh, basically yes. gets his cover blown and is sort of forced to join a very 60s spy organization called Spiral. Good. Um, and so he basically goes off in this uh, so, sort of no one lives forever uh, direction. It's good. Um uh, dang it, it's super like and his partner uh, is huntress um, i'm so into this yeah and so like do you like watching really sexy athletic people um like go on adventures and and dude it is so it is so Crichton and aaron uh, uh in i love it in grayson uh at times i think you'd i think you really dig it but uh tim seeley uh i think co-wrote that with tom king uh, who's basically become uh, like my favorite comics uh, writer by far. Uh, he was the guy who did uh, The Vision that I, t- I talked about uh, at length a few other times. Yeah. Anyway, so Tim Seeley is flying solo uh, with Nightwing, and now uh, Dick Grayson has sort of reclaimed the mantle of Nightwing. And uh, what's interesting here is that it's about... It's partly about him just trying to... like sort of seamlessly pick up his old life, uh, but also him realizing that maybe his values uh, have shifted a little bit from what the rest of the, you know, quote unquote bat family uh, believes. Right. So like there's a point in this story where he's talking about where Batgirl he's on this quest and Batgirl is like, what are you even doing? Like, why are you, why are you pursuing this? Like, is this, is this one of your Robin hood things? And sort of in a narration, he explains that like when he was a kid, he just loved the, the, the legend of Robin hood and how years later when he shared sort of his affinity for that story, uh, you know, robbing from the rich, giving to the poor, addressing justice like that, uh, Batgirl, uh, you know, Barbara Gordon, yeah. uh, immediately fires back. And it's like, no, anyone who does something like that is a criminal and they should oh. go to jail. And Dick Grayson doesn't really believe that, but he's always kind of worked with people who do, right? Like, it's kind of the ethos that animates Batman uh, to an extent. Uh, Not quite as severely, but uh, certainly Barbara uh, has a much more black and white, like, uh, you know, she's she's the daughter of a cop who's proud of her cop father. 
Um, and the villain that emerges, at least in this first book of Nightwing, is um, you know, it's it's the old like hidden figure from from Grayson's past. But it sort of culminates in this argument this guy is making that Dick Grayson could have been could have been a contender. No, he could have been <laughs> he could have been a genuine hero that helped pe- the people of Gotham the way they needed to be be helped. He could have been somebody who, uh, you know, actually attacked the real villains of the world, the people who actually like hold and abuse their power, uh, the people who actually sort of uh, you know hoard the resources that the people need that the people could use to survive. Uh, in this world and in his in his argument like Bruce Wayne is sort of like the the number like the the prime uh you know participant in all that right like uh he has made himself a heroic uh public figure and a heroic private one uh but it's all based on this really regressive idea of who deserves what right like yeah. um and so this character's argument is that well, actually, like what Grayson believes in his heart, what he kind of knows to be true, is that a world that operates like that is irretrievably broken, and a justice that is only meted out uh, largely to the poorest and most unconnected and the least powerful people, you know, in the world, uh, is no sort of justice at all. And you can't be a hero and ignore those broader systems. And it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting book for that reason, uh, because you're. It's sort of, and I'm hoping this, the rest of the series runs with this. I have a sinking feeling it won't, but it's sort of making clear that, like, you know, increasingly with the experiences he's had, Dick Grayson is starting to diverge from the traditional ethics and mores of Batman. Um, the problem is that at the end of this plot line, it sort of seems like that character is defeated without really reply being made. This is, and this is kind of what, uh, it's a really good book. It's a lot of fun. It is, it is so humorous and witty and like, it is a charming romp, but in those last pages, it is, very well written, and it is asking some tough questions of a character who tends to laugh off uh, a lot of uh, weightier matters. And it doesn't address any of those points. It, it sort of it sort of falls back on the the old tried and true, like no, you've been twisted by hatred and your experiences, and you know the the villain is defeated, but without his argument really having been addressed. Um, yeah, and that's. That's a common problem, right? Like it's the, you know, a lot of villains uh, are sort of dispensed with a sort of uh, offhanded consider the source beatdown. And then whatever they said is ignored. Uh, But in a story like this, uh, especially given um, the series, like the comics sort of growing awareness that like, man, for a guy who saves Gotham a lot, uh, that city certainly suffers a lot under (laughs) under Batman's watch. (laughs) Uh, it's it's an important discussion to have, and Nightwing gets so close to having it, and then kind of veers away. Uh, that being said, I'm hoping the rest of the series sort of uh, takes up those threads. Even if it doesn't, though, it's a cool villain, and 
it's just so much fun hanging out with these characters and seeing uh, Dick Grayson, who's a much more human character, uh, sort of play off these figures who are often only glimpsed through the far sterner lens of Batman. Yeah. That sounds like something I would enjoy, and I probably should uh, go out and enjoy it. I also, God, that's the number one thing that I, I want from superhero fiction. It's the number one thing is for them to stop teasing actual treatment of more yeah. important topics and actual treatment of like, hey, actually, it's the system, stupid. Yeah. Um, it kind of, you know, I really... And of course it can be done. I, I, I hate the argument that like, no, this is for fun. You can't do it without making it a lesson. Like, of course you can. Incredibly intelligent people are capable of telling really interesting nuanced stories. They just, I just want them to do it and try it. <laughs> yeah. But it sounds like it at least gets halfway there, which is certainly, certainly better than, than a lot of other stuff. And I, I, I definitely want to check that out. That sounds rad as hell. Um, I'm also enjoying a, a book. Did I talk about Heart of the Sea? I think I did uh, in a previous. Uh, not with me. No, I didn't. Oh shit. Okay. Well, was I was one, going to was talk. Was that one of the ones I'm not on? Uh, no, no, no. I don't. I don't think so. Um, the Ron Howard movie. No, actually, well, the book that it's based on. Okay. The uh, the the book itself. Yeah. Well, shit. I I was gonna talk about Leviathan Wakes, which is the first book in the uh the series of books that the yeah. Expanse is um uh based on. But I'm pretty early on in that, and I just finished. In the Heart of the Sea. So why don't I talk about... Yeah, let's hit that. In the Heart of the Sea. Let's do that. Now, i got to bring up the other Wikipedia page, but that's okay. Um, so this is a historical book. It's, a, it's not historical fiction. It's actually sort of based on the real story of what actually happened uh, with the whale ship Essex. Um, which, of course, if you're not aware, is the, uh, the story that inspired Moby Dick. It is the... Uh, like the the source story, I guess you would call it. Uh, so this is a book from, oh God, the early 2000s, I think. Uh, and there was a movie uh, a couple of years ago that came out that was sort of based on it, but, but I just watched, I just read the book. It's actually a fairly quick read, uh, interestingly. It's only a couple hundred pages. Uh, but, you know, for, for his, you know, historical book, that's, that's pretty brief. Uh, and I found it incredibly readable. Uh, it's by Nathaniel Philbrick. And it is uh, a really kind of no bullshit uh, accounting of what, of the island of Nantucket, especially in the early 1820s, which was sort of improbably the center of the of the whaling industry at that time. The early 1820s, New Bedford would later kind of overtake it uh, and be a much more uh, sort of uh, heavy shipping area because it had a better port. Uh, but Nantucket, man, the early 1820s, that was the place to be. Um, Sort of the politics of the island and some of the lives of the of the uh, the men aboard the Essex, and how it all kind of went down. And of course, the Essex was sort of an older whale ship, and its captain was a first time captain who just got promoted from first mate. And the politics of that worked out in such a way that he didn't get the best pick of the crew, so he kind of had you know a whatever crew, kind of a green crew. And his first mate, uh, Owen Chase, was like this hard ass sailor who was gunning for his own captaincy. So certain things were pushed, certain things were done that maybe shouldn't have been done, mm -hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. But really the sort of event that that brings it literally all down was not something that was uh, that could have really been seen, I guess. Uh, it, it was attacked pretty viciously uh, by a sperm whale, and they <laughs> uh, floated out to sea uh, in, the, in the whale boats, which are basically like 
they're kind of like lifeboats with a little more ambition to them. Yeah. They're made to be sort of performance craft to do the actual killing of a whale and sort of drag it back to the main ship. Um, uh, most of the men starved to death, and uh, some of them had to sort of resort to cannibalism to to survive. A few a few Jesus. people survived. Something like seven survived, I think. Um, but it really goes into all the details, uh, including the really incredibly brutal and disgusting business of whaling. Um, growing up in New England, uh, and with all of its maritime traditions, I used to go to whaling museums and whaling village, you know, sort of yeah. uh, historical recreated, you know, whaling communities, things like that. Uh, Mystic Seaport is a place I used to go to all the time as a kid uh, in the summer. And it's basically a, a living recreation of a seaport in the early 1800s, basically. Uh, and they had a lot of whaling things. I used to go to the Whaling Museum in New Bedford. But, you know, these sort of family-friendly attractions don't go into uh, the, like, mech- mechanism by which the whales actually died and how yeah. fucked up it was. <laughs> like, I mean, like, obviously. Well, um, they rendered the whales aboard ship, too, right? Yes, like, they did. It was basically a uh, a butchery, I guess. Uh, yeah. Like a half butcher shop, half uh, factory. for They started processing, even. Uh, some of the oil right on the ship, right? Because they're the only like because because I read a lot of the uh, Jack Aubrey, uh, Steve Maturin oh, uh, sure. novels, which are great, yeah. but like yeah. from time to time they come across a whaler, and the, like in the Age of Sail, they're the only ship on the sea that's like under a plume of like stinky smoke uh, yep. because they're constantly like uh, got it. It's horrible, but yeah, processing. They're 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 basically like roasting and rendering the fats out of uh the the whale meat because uh, that's what they cared about was was the oil right yeah um yeah it's fucking nasty and i say you know it was pretty gross i mean i have a pretty high tolerance for gross um in general uh but going into sort of what actually killed the whale it's fucking gross it's not just like stabbing something in the heart it was like the way they killed it was pretty fucking messed up too um <laughs> there's just a lot of a lot of nasty business whaling was a nasty nasty business um and of course there there is a whole heaping uh of racism that happened there as well uh there were many black crew members none of them survived uh and of course the black crew was kept uh, segregated from the white crew um, and they had like worse food and of course worse treatment and so on and so forth. I mean, this is uh, during a time where slavery is still legal, but not certainly not in the North. Uh, so, you know, the North is seen in some ways as, as a more progressive place, but like, holy shit. Uh, <laughs> mm, a lot of bad things happened on that ship. Uh, and of course there was a really interesting, actually, uh, where this happened, where they were actually uh, attacked by the whale uh, they would have had a very good chance of surviving uh, intact if they had just gone to Tahiti, which at the time was called the Society Islands. But of course, there were rumors about the Society Islands being, you know, run by ravenous cannibals. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. instead, they they braved something like 60, 60 odd days on uh, the open Pacific Ocean, uh, trying to get back to South America. And it was not good, not great. Uh, fascinating tale. Um, very interesting if you're if you are into accounts, like historical accounts of again, I guess this sort of ties into our main theme, but you know, uh, humans versus nature, and uh, also humans who are horrible to each other, uh, based on all kinds of uh, systemic issues. But also, man, it's just a, a grueling and brutal tale about survival, uh, first yeah. and foremost, and just how 
some of these guys survived. Um, and Owen Chase, who was like the hard ass at the beginning, uh, was actually a survivor. And uh, the men on his ship actually did better than on a couple of the other whale ships because, or, you know, the, the whale boats, rather, uh, that they used to survive. Once he because, was in a new context? Or, well, it was more on. that he was a hard ass about rationing, so their food lasted longer. He oh, was, yeah. uh, And he himself did not uh, partake more than the men did. He actually sort of, you know, became one of them in certain ways and, you know, so on and so forth. Just really interesting book. Very well written. Very readable. Um, I, I do have... Uh, I All right, love. here's a question. Yes, go on, go on. Why did the whale attack them? Like, because usually sperm whales were not known for doing that. Like, Moby, like, the, you know, Moby Dick is a is a story, right? But it's not like that sperm whales are routinely, like, sinking ships. It's right. a weird thing to have happen. What went down? It was, it was unprecedented. Uh, the way it's told, it, they don't really know, but they were certainly hunting some other whales in that whale's pod uh, when okay. it happened. Yeah. Uh, so it may have just been a, a very errant, like, fuck you guys. I mean, whales are pretty intelligent creatures, uh, considering all things. And uh, this is still fairly, this isn't exactly early in the whaling business, but it, it wasn't like late days at all, by any means. Uh, this part of the Pacific still had a lot of whales in it. Uh, so it's entirely possible that this whale was just <laughs> pissed off. <laughs> there are a couple of accounts of this happening, uh, but none at this point, I don't think. I think at this point, this was really kind of one of the first times or maybe one of the first times it was fully like, uh, you know, the ship was completely lost after something like this happened. But yeah, normally very docile tr- uh, creatures, but this this one was having none of it. So, but, you know, hopefully I, I like to think that this whale got away and had like a really good whale life. That's what I that's what I really want to think. Like this whale was like a revolutionary hero yeah. among whales, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah. It was also massive. It was like a tremendous, tremendous whale that did it. Yeah, much bigger than most other. Uh, I think it's bulls, right? For yeah, male whales. Good, good rhyme in there. But it's also like a much bigger than normal whale. So maybe it kind of you know was sick of uh, was sick of all this shitty yeah. whaling. Because there's there's a nightmarish uh, scene in one of the Aubrey Maturin books. It's not nightmarish. It's more. It's just an unsettling conversation uh, yeah. because. The interesting thing about these books is they're being written from I think they're they're written in like the sixties, seventies. Like they're so pretty sure. modern, right? But they're all yeah. written from a perspective of it's the early eighteen hundreds. Uh so there's things that we know that like the narrator and the, the point of view characters really do not know, right? Yeah. Uh and so they're talking to to whalers and they're talking about like uh types of whale they hate. Uh and <laughs> they tend to be like uh, like I think that well, they didn't like humpbacks because like humpbacks like fought and like r- like were really difficult to to wrangle, uh, but they loved sperm whales uh, because they, they they just weren't mean. Uh, they just there was this horrible thing of of like basically the whalers can sort of perceive that these are enormous, incredibly like gentle creatures, yeah. And all they see in that is like oh I love that thing because it's easy for me to hunt and kill. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's fucked up, man. Yeah, and it's really weird to be <laughs> reading it, and it's like, yeah, this was this was a massive, uh, this was a massive energy source, yeah. uh, for you know, for 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 a, for a, a pretty key part of the industrial revolution. Yeah, there is there is something uh, the book does go into in the early portions of of uh, sort of the narrative about how Nantucket was was uh, full of Quakers. 
incredibly religious people who okay. were all about being very peaceful. Okay. Turning I feel like cheek. I'm not going to like how this. Well, no, just just that what a what a just insane juxtaposition that they were so bloodthirsty in their whaling endeavors and and they they wrote like these vicious poems about killing whales and all this kind of stuff and they were like turn the other cheek my son you know it was it's a very weird culture that was on nantucket at the time and it, and it does go into that it does actually go into how fucked up that is like whaling was messed up man and these people who are so religious and such pacifists themselves were super into it and they made a lot of money off of it so it's a very very interesting thing to note yeah uh, that's you know that's something that comes up in uh six forgets um yeah which is sort of about the founding of the u.s navy but like uh a lot of the best warship builders were quakers themselves huh. uh right because like they were they were again because in part because of these reasons uh they yeah. were very good at creating high performance uh ships and there was some debate within those communities like should we really be involved with like creating warships for the u.s government uh, and some weren't okay with it, uh, and some were like, "Ah, eh, fuck it, give me the money. Uh, I'm good at this." But and I think going back to our other discussion, like again, the failure to uh, of a lot of like human societies, a lot of uh, you know Western and uh, you know Christian communities, to have any kind of identic- identification or empathy with uh, other animals. Yeah. is again like just an increasingly mind-boggling blind spot yeah uh that yeah um or even just a, a trusting in a very kind of old testament way of looking rather than a new testament way of looking which always always struck me as very odd to be honest yeah uh, you know the very here's the natural order of things you know women are under men children under are under Whatever their parents, is you know the but whole. You shall have there's the natural order. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. And animals are there for your to be your beast of burden and your food. Um, yeah, though I don't, I don't know how much of that is also layered on through later medieval interpretation, right? Like, because a lot of sure, sure. what happens in the Middle Ages is this idea that like we replicate our understanding of God and heaven here on Earth. So God is the king of. Uh, you know, heaven, and therefore uh, man is the king of nature, and therefore uh, just eat it, my dude. <laughs> just eat it. <laughs> yeah. Butcher it and eat it, man. Yeah, Melt it, very... whatever you want. You're, yeah, you you, you, you rule these God meats. said it. Must be okay, right? Yeah. God said it. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of that. It's a lot of that. It's, it's uh, uh, fascinating and troubling <laughs> in equal measure. Um. So yeah, I highly recommended that. It's it's a it's a pretty quick read for a a uh, you know historical historical nonfiction, I guess. Uh, pretty pretty cool book. I like it a lot. Genre history. That's all it says uh, here. Thanks Wikipedia uh, for history. All right, so I think that's probably going to do it for us, unless we have more uh, <laughs> whaling thoughts. I suppose. I don't. All right. <laughs> don't do it. I figured. I figured, man. Don't eat it. Don't eat the whale. I once Whales trusted nice. someone in Iceland who told me that like it was a traditional dish, and then our friend Niev uh, later oh, yes. told me that apparently that's complete bullshit, and uh, <laughs> unless a whale beached. Uh, in general, I didn't hunt whale until fairly recently. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, don't do it. Don't participate. Yeah, that, tracks. that tracks. 
man. Oof. Whales are nice. Whales are our friends, not food. Can we just adopt uh, a weird uh, Finding Nemo thing and just be, be friends with the whales? They're beautiful. And then, on that note, be friend with the whales. It's probably time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. Oh, well, this is predictable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always going to leave this in because I find it amusing. <laughs> you can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. We really do appreciate you uh, listening to us. And also, uh, if you would tell a friend, uh, tell a nice whale, uh, tell a whaler, but uh, not the whale in the same room because you don't you don't know what's going to happen there. Uh Tell people that you think might enjoy the show about us. It really does help us out so much, and we really do appreciate it. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. <laughs>